April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. I'm often asked how Anchored came to be. The short answer is that it stemmed from a television series that I used to have. Limited airtime meant that my interviews were cut into sound bites, leaving some truly wonderful history sitting on the editing floor. I thought it might be time to dig into the archives and share some interviews that took place at a time when I'd never even dreamt about starting a podcast. This week's episode features Chris Henshaw, a dear family friend and renowned reelmaker from the UK. I met up with him six years ago on the banks of the Kisviox River to learn more about his experiences as a young man helping Hardy through some tough times. Totally relaxed. We edit the crap out of these things. Oh, right. That's good. Because I'm very nervous. (laughs) Well, we'll probably only get four four minutes of it. Okay. And we are just going to tell your story a little bit. And I'm going to lead you through it. Okay. So the only thing I'm going to need you to do that's a little awkward at first is I need you to tell me in a moment uh, your whole name and um, what you do in the fishing world. So go ahead. Right. My name is Chris Henshaw. And uh, I'm from England, the north of England, a little place called Barnard Castle. Okay. Uh, we have a nice little river there, the River Tees, uh, which was devoid of salmon for 50 years. Oh, really? Um, and I was one of the people, the, the first people that was the inter- instigated the returning of getting the salmon back into the river. And I'm glad to say now we are getting a steady return every year. And it's, for the last three or four years, it's, uh, it's improved. It's not fantastic, but it is improving. It's on its way. So they cleaned up the pollution in the mouth, and uh, the only problem is that we've got a, quite a few seals down at the mouth, and uh, yes. they're doing a lot of damage. Um, we can have that problem too. Yeah, well, they, they put a barrage in down there, and uh, the fish pass has been in for 10 years now, and uh, it still hasn't passed the environmental standards. We keep pressuring them and uh, hope to get there in the end. Why don't you tell me when you started coming to British Columbia and why? Oh, um, well, I, I fished in uh, the UK. I fished since I was about five years old. And then um, I started, I was, I was in the army and I did a lot of fishing down in the south of England uh, when I was there on the chalk streams. Uh, then I moved up, I, met, well, I moved up north in the army. I met my wife and... Um, came out of the army and uh, there was a nice little river where I lived and I became, I was actually the secretary of the Angling Association there for 12 years. Oh really? So I did a lot of, uh, we bought nine miles of water so our club now has nine miles of its own water and it's only 35 pound a year for the members so it's good. It sounds like a great deal. Yeah, yeah. So then um, I got into the collecting of old reels and things. And I did it for quite a lot of years. And uh, I met quite a lot of people. And I met a guy called Roger Still. Okay. Uh, uh, Roger was here last week. Oh, is he from England as he's well? He's from England. And he's been fishing in British Columbia here with Jim Adams uh-huh. for the last 20-odd years. Oh, excellent, excellent. Right. And um, so 
Me and Roger became very, very good friends, and he's uh, he's dealt in old tackle since he was 14 years old, and he's 50 odd now. Like so, uh, I started to uh, I I did a little bit of engineering when I was at tech at school. Right. And um, I didn't only only start collecting tackle. I started repairing it for myself, oh. and then other people at the auctions started bringing stuff for me to repair. And then I got, so uh, repairs were coming in from all over the world. And even Hardy's was asking me to do repairs. Oh. And that's how I became involved with Hardy's because I started to get, uh, to help them to design some of the prototype work for the factory. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, well, there was a little bit of controversy with repair work because it was getting, you know, what's a repair and what's a forgery. You know, the closeness of the, you know, how, how do you draw the line? So there was a lot of hassle in the UK a, a few years ago. So uh, oh, probably about 10 or 12 years ago, I, I decided to manufacture my own reels. And um, I started doing a little blog on one of the classic forums. And uh, people started saying, oh, well, I want a reel. And uh, it snowballed and I now have about a two year waiting list for my reels. That is excellent. Yeah, and I've uh, I'd retired from my work by then, so I, I just do it as an hobby spare time, and I use the money to help the grandchildren out. Right, well, so, that's a good cause. Yeah, that's a good cause. So when when did you first come to British Columbia? Then? Oh, sorry, I came here about um, I would think the first time I came about twelve or fifteen years ago. Wow, I so think I think it was, would be twelve years ago, something like that. And was it Roger who suggested that you come here? Roger came and we came to Mr. Clay's right. here. <laughs> and uh, Bob was by this time buying a few reels off Roger and collecting. And I'd made a reel and um, this is the reel. Wherever it is. Is it this, this one? Is, this, is, oh. this is very much like the reel. It's this one's slightly different, as you see. Let me see that. That is so beautiful. And Bob took an interest in it, and uh, I was actually fishing on the Bulkley, and uh, there was a guy came up the stream of the jet boat, and he drowned me nearly, because he he, he come over and he said, "Gee, what's that reel?" <laughs> <laughs> and then he set off in the jet boat and drowned me again. <laughs> There's a drag on this. Yeah, that's got a disc drag in it um, and also a click button, a click inside. But it's a classical style with the uh, Hess handle. Y yeah, it looks yeah. extremely traditional. Now, what I did was with this was, this was the reel that I, um, then I became involved with Hardy's and, and um, they were on about relaunching the Cascopedia. Oh, yes, when, uh, uh, that's yeah. a beautiful reel. So I designed the prototype along with their Ed reel maker and I made the original prototype for the, for the Cascopedia, the, the Ebonite one that was made. And what was this? Uh, oh, I can't remember the year now. It must have been uh, 70... I can't remember the, 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 the date, April, honestly. Um, That's okay. It must have been 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, but what happened was, anyway, I, I, I did the, made the prototype reel and they hadn't got any production reels and they hadn't got any ebonite, which I had in stock. What is that? Ebonite, it's like a hard vulcanized rubber. Oh, and, and what's the, so special the about it? Well, it's light and uh, the, all the old classic reels was made from it, the Vomhoffs. Really? That's interesting. The Walker reels, the Vomhoff reels, the uh, Zwarg reels. 
were all made of ebonite. And the ebonite is, um, that's, that's, ebonite. that's ebonite, the handle as well, the ardy reels, the early ardy reels oh, okay. went from ivory to, or ivorine to ebonite. Got it. So, uh, yeah, I did, so I, I, I made this first prototype reel uh, for, for Hardy's and uh, it was stamped 01. No, sorry, it was stamped, the, the prototype reels for Hardy's, we always use 000. Hardy's always kept one, two and three of the reels, but I kept the 000. So this reel, they hadn't got any, so they uh, actually used it for the adverts in Japan. And they also had used it for the um, magazine of the, for, for that particular reel. Wow. So that was a bit of a success because Hardy's were in desperate trouble at that time. And uh, I'm very proud of the fact that my reel helps keep the factory going at that particular time. Why would there be trouble in a reel company like Hardy, who's been around for years it was, and years? It's, it's, it's sad, really, but it's the Far East. I mean, I can give you a, I've got a perfect example in the car there. Um, I've got a rod in the car with a reel and the old outfits, $120. Not a Hardy though. No, no, no. So no. Hardy may have been seeing trouble because there Hardys were... Hardys were in trouble because of their... They did, move, they, did move, they did move some production to the Far East, but um, maybe they did too little too late, you know, too not... They maybe weren't quick enough in the move. What, what's so special about Hardy? Well, Hardy, uh, Hardy Reel is, has always been, even from the right, right, take right from the very beginning when, when old man Hardy invented the first perfect. It was perfect by name and perfect by nature. It, it, I don't think there's ever been a better reel designed anywhere. There's been good reels, the Charlton's and the uh, Vomhoff's. Uh, probably Vomhoff's were as good in its day. But um, for the English tradition, everybody wanted to own Hardy. And the craftsmanship was second to none. Uh, there's an old story with uh, Jimmy Smith that used to be one of the early reel makers there. And old uh, LRH Hardy used to walk around the, the workshop because they were all on time and motion then. Oh. They all only got paid for how many reels they made. And if he saw a scratch or a mark on it, he carried a hammer. And bang, if the reel wasn't good enough, only the very best met left that factory and everything was inspected in detail and inspected again. Tell me about your, your Perfect. So obviously we both love the Perfect. So what, what happened was uh, I had people, I, I started doing this blog on the forum there and people started saying uh, they like my reels and could I make them one? And uh, then I started to think, well, as I moved on, I thought, well, why haven't Hardy's done this? And uh, I'll try and improve it a bit. So, for example, the, 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 the main thing that I think I improved was um, a lot of people want... Hardy's hardly ever made left-hand wine perfect reels. Yeah, that's right. I know. It I was very, very... It, it, in the 40s or 50s, and a lot of people, especially in Scandinavia, started using perfects, but they couldn't get all the left-hand wine ones. And Hardy's had only ever made very, very few. So they were very, very expensive. So um, I started to get requests for left-hand wines. And I made them in the traditional way until a guy from the Great Lakes bought one and he rang me up and he said, Chris, I've had a disaster with one of your reels. And I said, no, oh, what's happened like? You know, has it dropped to bits? No, no, he said, but I was playing one of the biggest trout I've ever caught in my life. 
and the spool dropped off into the water. Oh, no! And he said it took me 25 minutes to pull the line up because as I was pulling it up with it being a lake, the line was coming <laughs> off the spool. <laughs> so, so that made me start to think. And um, so I thought, well, why have Hunt Hardys stopped this? Because you, do get, you have the little retaining screw yeah. Uh, on a left-hand wind, yes, but yes. that's the only thing that stops the spool from unwinding because right. the spindle's a right-hand thread. So I thought, well, maybe if I put a left-hand spindle thread on. And oh. it's, not, it's not easy to do. It's easy to put it on the spindle, but to put it onto the spool and then turn the spool, it's, it's not easy. So um, I did this. And it's been a success. May I see? Is this it? No, that's a right-hand one, I think. Oh, you've got a lefty here. Yeah, you can get that one out first if you want to. For my 30th birthday, my brother-in-law bought me a Hardy Perfect, and I cherish it. Yeah. And he told me that finding a left-hand retrieve was damn near impossible. It is. Mm. But that's the one I built. That's the one I built for Marty. Chris, they're mm -hmm. so gorgeous. I can't believe you yeah. built this. That's a bronze line guard, which Hardys didn't have. Oh, and this little bump on the front here, um, which Hardys don't have. If you notice with a Hardy, it's flat there. Yeah. Well, I thought it was a better idea to make the spindle a little longer, so it was a little more secure. This is so gorgeous. And these these little indentations here are what they call cusps. And what does a cusp do? They're for putting your leader or You know, if your leader got stuck, you could, and you want to take the spool off, you can put the line through it. To, uh, oh, um, this is such a gorgeous reel. Tell me, how long does a reel like this take to make? It takes me about, well, maybe a good two weeks. Wow. That's, that's if, uh, it would probably take me a month if I, if I was, um, you know, didn't have to, you know, it depends on what time, how I feel and what I've got. It depends on what I have to do with the grandchildren, you know. Right. <laughs> Did you have a history in in machining before no, reels? Well, when I when I left school, I went to, uh, I mean, I worked in a mining area and um, you either went around the mine or went to the steelworks mm -hmm. or in the army. So I went down the mine and I went to technical college and I did a little bit of turning there, like, and uh, then uh, the mine closed, so I joined the army. And I never did anything then up until um, I more or less met Roger. And uh, I went to this guy's house with the old tackle and I, w I went to buy some tackle off him. And I came back with his grandfather's lathe. So uh, that was the start. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I don't, should, don't tell you about the first reel I ever made. <laughs> Roger, you, 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 you were in hysterics. <laughs> do, you still do you still have it? No, 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 I don't still have it. I don't, I'm gonna tell you a story about my reels. I, I don't have very many at all. Um, so I uh, ended up making this, uh, buying this lathe and uh, I went from there. I bought myself a little mill and I knocked the part of the garage out and built a little beast on the side and filled my time in there. This and is now great. I've made reels for, I actually made a reel not so long back for, um, they made it, there was a reel that Hardy's made called the Alter Reel, which was a six inch diameter salmon reel. For, right. for the altar? For the altar. Oh. And it was specially made for the Duke of Roxburgh. And uh, everybody wanted one of these, tried to get one of these old reels. Well, there was only very, very, very few made. So I decided to make, to make one for myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I finished it. And uh, I got in, uh, this Russian guy got in touch with me and he asked me if I could find an altar reel. I said, well, I do know where there is one, but well, I know where there's a couple, like the Duke has one. Uh, so 
I said, yeah, I know who's got one, but I don't think you'll sell it. Right. Not yet. Anyway, I was talking to this guy in later in time, and uh, he decided to sell it. But in the meantime, I'd mentioned to this Russian gentleman, he actually lives in Finland, and uh, he, uh, he got mine out of me. I'm he not made me, He made me an <laughs> yeah. a, a offer I couldn't refuse. <laughs> so he, so he's, got, he's got on his shelf now, he's got Mr. Henshaw's altar and Mr. Hardy's <laughs> altar. <laughs> he's got both of them. Yeah, and, and I also, uh, I, I took a shine to his daughter. She's, a, she's about the same, a little bit older than my granddaughter, like, and um, so uh, I, had, I once made a little one-inch nickel silver, all nickel silver, perfect reel. Right. So I gave it to her for a key ring. Oh, that's so, so sweet. So she's got it on a key ring. Now, on, on the Alta, mm -hmm. I mean, this is, this is very, one of the great things about this project is I get to visit friends of mine. And yeah. mm. you and I met last, I it, guess it would have been last year. No, no, the year before, was it? I think it was mm. last year, last no. June. Yeah, not no, this no, last it was the June. salmon season, but the season before. The season before. Two seasons, two seasons ago. ago, yeah. We met two seasons yeah. ago in Norway. That's correct. And we were both Atlantic salmon fishing on the gala. That's correct. And um, I'll be honest, I was a little surprised to hear that you were a steelhead fisherman. You're English, you're a very successful and well-known Atlantic salmon angler, and yet you have the steelhead bug. So tell me... Tell me why, what is it about steelheading that draws you in? These are explosive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're just ball busters. The Atlantic salmon has got nothing to touch them. Uh, they're strong Atlantic <laughs> salmon and they're a bit dogged, you know, but uh, these things can, they can be dull, they can be explosive, and they're mind-blowing when <laughs> yeah. they really explode. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're very special. They're a special, uh, special fish. Roger taught me this. He said that... Um, they're a fish that um, has to be protected. Yes. Um, they're just special. There's something about them that uh, gets it gets into your blood and you can't get it you, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to catch them and uh, they want to kick your ass. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Yeah, yeah. Do you see any any comparisons between the Atlantic salmon world and the steelhead world? Um, I would I would say that the um, it, the Atlantic salmon world is is two stages really. Um, it, uh, there was a lot of big changes came in well, probably ten years ago uh, when the catch and release started in England, and it's it's got more and more catch and release now. And a lot of the people that had the famous beats don't fish them now, whether it's that they couldn't kill the fish uh, or not. But I was once walking across quite a famous beat on the day a few, not so many years ago, and I, I said to the friend I was with, I said, do you know 15 years ago, 20 years ago, me and you wouldn't have even been allowed on this grass. Right. Never mind fish the river. And uh, so things, are, uh, to my mind, things have improved so, because everybody's getting a chance to salmon fish now if they want to. Can we talk about that? Yeah. So traditionally only the English I mean, from what I understand... Only very wealthy people. Fly fishing fish was a... For wealthy, yeah. It was a royal sport. Yes. And so the royalty would fish, and, and these rich people would go over to Scotland where some of the best fishing in the world was, and they'd fish there. Is that yes, right? Yes, that's correct. And then there was some sort of economic change where the Scots were now 
also able to fish their water. Yes, yeah, the, the, the Scots, um, there's, a lot of, there's quite a lot of association water now where they can, they can fish themselves. Uh, but there's still a lot of water where, where they can't. So uh, how does that work? You can well, it own works water? That they, they, no, the, um, the, the estates own the water. The, the Crown Commissioners and the estates, and they lease it out to hotels or uh, some, some water. for. They always try and keep a little bit of water for the local people. Mm -hmm. It may be only a short pool or two, but um, still the majority of the water is... Uh, there's some private beats, some hotel beats, like they're private as well, I suppose. And then there's the, um, like the Lerd Steels. He still owns quite a lot of, of water. Who's that? The Lerd. The like, Lerd? Like the Lerd. Well, in Scotland, they call um, the owner of the land, like the guy oh, who... Oh, the Lord! He's the guy who owns the castle. Yeah, of <laughs> That's course. the best way of saying it. The big guy on campus. <laughs> yeah, he's the one who owns <laughs> yeah. the castle, yeah. <laughs> right. And, um, yeah, so it's... Uh, I would say people have got more access. Is it almost like New Brunswick in, in how it's run? Um, yes, in a way. Yeah, yeah. For the for the private beach, yes, I would. I'll put it on a par with that. Yeah. Is it surreal for you to come out here and see all this beautiful water, and know that you're allowed to fish it? Well, this is the great thing about coming to British Columbia is that um, I can get a permit, and within reason, I can go and fish anywhere, just about. Right. Um, and I like the rules as well. Uh, you know, it's all catch and release, barbless, and. Um, I think that's what it has to be these days. I agree. And I, there was nobody worse than me for taking a fish if I wanted one when I was younger. You know, uh, I've totally altered. What changed? Why now do you not feel the need to take your fish home? Um, I don't like killing things. I used to shoot a lot when I was younger, and I stopped shooting at one stage. And if I, if I wanted to kill a duck now, I would still do it. But I appreciate nature now a lot more than when I was younger. That's a great answer. Do you know anything interesting about the tradition of, of Hardy in general? Yeah, um, well, old, uh, the, the Hardy family, um, they actually started off as silver, uh, um, cutlery makers. Really? Yeah, yeah. And then the old man Hardy started making the odd, the odd rod, rods mainly. And uh, they employed a guy called, um, Walter Dingley okay. and, and a guy called Slater from Newark and uh, they were some of the best reel makers in England at the time. Hardy's, they lived on the name a lot. The quality was second to none, but they made sure everybody knew it and they made sure everybody paid for it. They used I mean, hammers. there was nothing to see. <laughs> well, there was nothing. They opened the big shop in Pall Mall in London and uh, there was nothing to see. Half a dozen Rolls Royces stood outside. Got it. They didn't go in and collect the tackle. They ordered the tackle, then sent the chauffeur to pick it up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way, that's the way Hardys were. Um, Is there still that level of prestige associated with Hardy? No, that's where they went wrong, I think. You think? Yeah, uh, when that tradition went from England, uh, they still thought that they were above everybody. And, and the, the ordinary person, by this time, there's a lot of tackle dealers and a lot of other companies 
who'd moved in? Com- who'd moved in. Do you think that British Columbians have a history? Or, or not, we have a history, but do you think that British Columbians are on the way to having the same tradition or a similar tradition to what the Atlantic salmon anglers do? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean from what I... I don't know. I mean, I know I've met a lot of steelheaders since I've been over here, and they're fanatics. Mm-hmm. They really are. I mean, uh, they'll 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 go to any lengths to you know any time of year they'll tough it out to get a steelhead. You know, and uh, I think I think there's a lot of tradition in steelheading. Do you? What do you think of this? I hear this often. There are people who say that the Atlantic salmon anglers drink fine scotch. They dress quite sharp. They stay in nice, you know, beautiful, beautiful hotels. hotels. And the steelheaders drink whiskey, and they're grungy and dirty, and they like. Well, to they're the only ones. They're the noodles. only ones I've ever seen here yeah. that get out of a truck. <laughs> there was three this morning. I've, I must tell you this story about this morning. Yeah. So I gets up at half past five, and I goes down there, and the, just dark. I hope Mr. Bear isn't there. Right. So I fished, Bob had told me we'd be fished below the island before the guide boats get there. So I fished below the island, the guide boat came, and I'm walking back up, and so the guide boat goes, I come up behind the island, and I decide to put a dry fly on to fish the run at the back. And I hear this boom, 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 this ghetto music. (laughs) (laughs) There's three guys, jumps out the truck, jumps in the river, and I've never seen three guys come across a river so quick in all my life. And one of them's a typical, like, First Nation guy, you know. Uh, and anyway, they got such a shock when they came around the island because I was stood there in the pool. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> and that, to me, typifies uh, BC Steelers. Rough, ready, and get to it. Yeah. <laughs> Do you notice a difference in the older steelheaders compared to the younger steelheaders? Um... What, such as Bob, you mean? Yeah, do you, do you, the younger, the, the, my, generation's, my generation versus Bob's generation. Yeah, they wanted to learn. They wanted to learn, and uh, I've actually been helping one out before you're talking to you down here. I met one in the patch today, and he was still, he landed here with his truck and a little single-handed rod. He'd never seen a switch rod before. And, oh, no. Um, so I was showing him what it was and how easy it was, and we met a couple of the Indian guides, and... Uh, sort of put him in the right direction. And funnily enough, he's a local person that moved away from here and has come back. As they usually do. Yeah. And he started fishing, but he's totally got the wrong... He's only got the setup which he had when he left here. When and he, things have moved on a lot since then. They have, and that's really interesting that you mention that, because traditionally the double-handed rod, was it, it originated in Scotland and in oh, the yes, UK. Oh, yes, yes. And then, of course, it managed to find its way here, and it disappeared for a while, and now it's back. Yeah, because of the, I think a lot of it to do with these switch rods and these spate laves that's gone on in the, in the, in the States. I mean, you would never see an American here with a double-handed rod years ago. Right. And uh, now you see them all with double-handed rods. Because it's easier, and it's the way to do it. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> this is man where it originated. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, it's a double-handed castings has a fantastic history. It's fabulous, you know, when you go right into it. Alexander Grant, we were just talking about it the other night. His, his world record was only broken a few years ago, and I mean, uh, something like about 80 yards he was casting with a 25-foot rod then, 25-foot green art rod. 
Right. You, know, you wouldn't be able to lift it with me or, you know, no. it's so, so heavy. The great thing about having the double-handed rod is, you know, you can cast without needing too much space behind you. you. you this is the great thing with the switch rod. Um, that was, to me, for British Columbia, was the biggest improvement probably in the last 50 years. Right. Because people, it allows, it allows a guide to teach a total beginner how to fish within a very, very short period of time and enjoy it. Right. No hard work. And for the experienced guy, well, they're just, they're just a working tool that you enjoy. And the sky's the limit. You can, yeah, there's yeah. always ways to... Yeah, if, you, to if there's a hole in the trees, you can get a fish out. Uh, I always remember Stig Nielsen, the ghillie on the, uh, the the guide on the M, and he had a young lad called Rickard with him. Right. And he stood between these trees, and he said, uh, he's tying his old cast out, and um, Rickard says, but how are we going to get a fish out of here? And Stig says, first we have to hook it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll worry about that Don't later. Don't we worry about that later, yeah, yeah. I'll be honest so, with you, I've said that once or twice. So, do you want me to show you the inside of one of my reels? Um, I actually really do, yes, please. Yeah, right, because time's getting This gone. is important. <laughs> so this, this, so I've made quite a few reels in, since I uh, retired. And every time I make a reel, and I use it for myself, it ends up with somebody else. The one on the rod here, I presented to Bob's wife. Yes. Because and I started moving on, moving on, and she was wanting a real like, so I presented her that with that one. I have to thank you. Um, some years back, when you donated that beautiful Henshaw reel to my fundraiser, Flash oh, Fins. Oh, yeah, that's okay. Really, yeah. really appreciated yeah, that. I've done a few of those. Uh, you know, I'm, what I'm going to be stuck with here is getting a coin in here. This one hasn't got a. I've got it. So, what are the materials that that these reels are made out of? Well, that's a brass foot. Uh, that's an artificial ivory handle. This one's got a real handle. That's made from a mammoth tusk from Alaska. Wow! Yeah. And then this, this is bar stock uh, aircraft grade aluminium. Oh, okay. So it's all the old Ardy reels were made from a cast aluminium, which cracked and you only got to look at it and it broke. Um, but this stuff's pretty, it's pretty strong. Okay. Uh, the line guard is uh, bronze. So that should take on a nice patina when it, when it ages. What's the reason for the line guide? Um, well, the line guide was originally made. I don't think you need them on a modern rods. And I, I have quite a few customers that don't like them. They're, they'd sooner, whereas I put the extra pillars in here, four pillars, you, you can do it without a line guide with three pillars, one here, one here, one here, and mm. you will not catch the line. <clears throat> but why traditionally did they have one? Right because lines were made of silk. Ah, oh, yes, of course. And they wore the, they wore the fine, they, the, the aluminium wasn't as strong as this. There wasn't the modern fly lines. It was, there were rough silk lines. And of course, they burnt a hole through the frame in the reel. Oh. So that's the only reason that the line guard's there. It's oh. not to lay the line or anything like that. It's to protect the line. Very interesting. So, this one, I, I decided, as I say, I ended up with not having a reel because people take my reels. <laughs> so I thought, well, I stamp all my reels with my initials and uh, they'll probably be inside on that one. Okay. But this one, I stamped it oh, CH000. And this one's, as I say, it's got a, a mammoth tusk handle. 
but the spindle is the opposite way, so it's left-hand wind. Wow, and are those little ball bearings? They're ball bearings, yeah. I spin, how, spin all those in by hand. How does this work? Well, you see the little nailing I put on there, the little fancy nailing, and also on the inside of there. Well, you don't get any of this with a hardy reel. It's, uh, this is just me being posh. <laughs> yeah, so I made this one with a nickel silver, all nickel silver I line guide. Yeah. Um, this is all brass, and uh, then I made the. All these pieces are all handmade. They're not made in a machine. These are made by my hand, with a file. And now this piece, you see, is to make it, it probably takes you about an hour and a half. And the bearings, you, um, the separate race, and then I spin all the bearings in and spin them over. And but. Uh, that no. one I put inside it so that I wouldn't sell it. Oh my gosh, zero, 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 Chris Henshaw, my own reel. Do not sell or give away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Chris, that's so fantastic. <laughs> and this one I'll keep for the granddaughter because she started, just started fishing. She's only eight oh. year old and uh, it's a nice little trout reel for her. It's beautiful. So, Chris, what about reels without drags versus reels with drags? Why? I know for me, I love the feeling of it just being me and the fish without relying on a drag to help me land a fish. What's your take on why people prefer to have Do you a mean a disc reel? drag or a, rust or a drag reel? Uh, a, 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 click, a, click a, click, a click and pull. A click and pull reel, what you saw in there was a, a little pull, like a little tongue, going into a cog. Mm -hmm. And as that goes over like a clock, it goes tick, 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 tick. And then to make it, the noise differ, you, you put a spring across the top of it, across the top of the tongue, and by applying pressure, that makes the click louder, but it also puts a little bit of tension onto the spool at the same time. Now, a lot of people are under the misconception, and I have to explain it to some of my customers. They think, they say to me, oh, but, the drag's not strong like on a, a, a modern disc drag reel. Well, I say, well, it's not supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> it's just to stop the overrun. Right. You have a palming piece here, which you use to break. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> so, but it's amazing how many customers don't, don't know that uh, they're supposed to put the palm on here. It's my favorite part. And you know what the old Ardy, old man Ardy, old LRH used to do with the perfect reel? What? He didn't used to wind it like, play like a fish with the reel under there like that. He turned the rod over and he played the fish like that on oh, the top. Oh, really? <laughs> well, thank <laughs> Oh, that's classic. Yeah, well, we saw that I've nowadays. got pictures of him doing it, so. <laughs> In fact, when you see, if you happen to go and see Manfred, You'll see all sorts of pictures that, uh, of the old things that's I'll ask you. Yeah. Now, that's very interesting what you just said. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about is, be, for me, I, I fish a click and fall because I enjoy, like I said. It's the sound, isn't it? I love the sound, but I love, I love feeling connected to the fish and knowing that it's my hands that are the drag. Yeah. But I read in a book, I actually read in Topher's book, he said that one of the reasons why it's ideal to have... Is this Jones Guide? Tophroy? Yeah, Topher Brown. Oh, no, no, yeah, yeah. So in his book, he says that one of the advantages to having a click and pull is that you can gauge how fast the fish is pulling and at what speed the fish is running by listening to the rate the at which the click is sounding. Well, that's all right with salmon. But you can't do it with steel. They're too fast. Yeah, right. That's so <laughs> they, true. It just goes... <laughs> I can remember down here, um, not last year, the year before, I was in the tail of Bob's pool here, 
and I'd never caught a fish on the dry fly. And this fish hit the fly so hard that mm. it just about took the rod out of my hand. Yes, yes. I've never experienced anything. I have I seen take... it three times in my guiding career, the rod being ripped out of someone's hand. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. Yes. And today I told Tracy that I have not ever once caught a fish out of this river that didn't go straight to backing. Hmm, that's true. What's the difference between the Marquis, the Hardy Marquis, and the Hardy Perfect? Well, the Marquis is just a standard um, frame click and pull reel. It's a... Uh, it's a simple reel. Uh, it's just got a click and pull on it and a palming. I suppose over the old traditional, let's go back to the first reels. The first reels were plate wine reels and they had a, um, a spool and a frame and the spool was inside a caged frame and the winding plate here. But this was sealed. Mm. So Mr. Hardy had the great idea. He wanted a reel that he could palm. Right. So he invented the perfect. Other people copied it. A lot of people, many, many companies, Farlow's, um, Garden, probably half a dozen shops, even, even later on in, in, in the 50s, they, they copied it. And it's, well, it's been a really fantastic reel. For, for a long time, I've been fishing the Marquis. But be careful, the Marquis are okay, for, I would say, for salmon. But they'll disengage the spring. But I'll tell you, I was just going to say, I can guarantee you now that they'll blow the pole out, these steelhead, at some time or other. I don't know whether you've experienced that, but I can guarantee it. <laughs> don't put that in there. But yes, it was my perfect. It disengaged. <laughs> oh, was it? Yeah, my perfect uh, disengaged. Yeah, but... well, I know a few customers that, that's had that done too, and I also know why I, that's one of the reasons why I would say 80% of my customers are either Americans that come here or Canadians. That sounds right. And uh, with doing that spindle, uh, they can't lose the spools like they've been doing with the other reels. Other reels, not just Hardy. Uh, one or two with the, because if that little screw comes loose, that's it. You've lost the spool. And the fish. Yeah, that guy in the Great Lakes lost it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to place an order. Um, I'm slowly, you got dinner in seven minutes, so I'm just going to yeah, ask right. you, I've got that. Do you see any other similarities as a species between salmon and steelhead? No, not really. The steelhead is, is, is like a, I believe it comes from the Schatzer strain of rainbow. Um, the Canadian, they tried to import uh, rainbows to England, you know, I don't know whether you knew that. I did but not but know that. Yeah, well, in the uh, 1950s, I think it was, or maybe earlier, they brought, they, they transferred some rainbows or steelhead to the UK. And there's only two rivers which the rainbow survives in now in the UK. And one of them was right almost at the side of where I was born in. I was born in the high peaks in Derbyshire. And uh, there's a river called there, the River Dove, where Sir Isaac Walton, the, the grandmaster of when fishing was invented. Right, and when was that? When was fishing invented? Uh, I would think somewhere around about 1500 and something. Was it Atlantic salmon or trout fishing? No, 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 they, they, they didn't. The very first rods never even had a reel on. They just had the line tied to the top of the pole. Right. And then they, it was, wasn't called a reel. It's called a winch. A winch. A winch. So winching something up. And their fishing was mainly for uh, pike and things like that. Uh, I suppose in Scotland they maybe did, but uh, I think a lot of them they took with the burning, what they used to call burning the water. What's that? And they used to light straw. 
Oh, like the and natives. They used, and they yes. used to go out in the canoes, canoes with a spear. That's right, I see <laughs> Well, they that. used to use, the farmers used to use the the forks that they turned the bales away with. They used to use those for the salmon. <laughs> oh dear, okay. When, do you, when did the UK, or when did people start fishing for Atlantic salmon? Oh, that start, they started about 18... 1890, 1880, 1885 or something like that, I would say that's when the, the, they really took off. It used to take the, the, they fished in England and then they did, a guy called Jones designed, uh, um, he started designing tackle. But he also was the first person to uh, organise what you would call a, um, what do you call a person that organises holidays now? Uh, All of the... Organises holidays. Uh, oh, and a booking, a a booking, booking agent. agent. He was like a booking agent. And he, he did the first bookings to Scandinavia. And he, he, um, he wrote a book called Jones' Guide to Norway. Ah. His name was Tolfroy. Tolfroy. And uh, his books today, if you can get one, fetch around about £7,000. Oh, so that won't be happening. <laughs> yeah, no. And they've got the most... The reason they fetch so much money is not the fact that they... Um, Tell you all about how to get to Norway, what to do when you get to Norway, how to find the rivers, how to book them. Uh, they've got the most fantastic plates of salmon flies, fully dressed salmon flies you'll ever see in your life. Oh, I love those old books with yeah. those plates. Yeah. Well, you can get you can get the book from the classic li classic library. Oh, the, well, what's it called? The classic library. But what's the book called? Do you want a Jones guidebook? Jones guidebook. I'll get you one. We will talk. Um, I will definitely love to read that. That's this excellent. will just be a repo, like. A repo. It's just a reprint. Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, when I st I've actually just finished reading The Lost, I think it's called The Land of Moses, or The Lost World of Moses. Mm -hmm. Have you read that? No, no, no. But I'll tell you about this John's Guide. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a little bit in there about uh, the travel to Norway. And it took six weeks to get from the UK to get to the fishing then. Right. And uh, when they went over on the boat, they were... In the book it says, I strongly advise that you get the upper deck because the Danes travel on the lower deck and it's rather... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah, and I, um, I, got it. I had another book um, where there was two people that corresponded uh, on the, uh, the River Stordal in Norway and uh, it's a, there's a very famous fishery there. Uh, you went up and fished up on the Fora, on the Stordal. I did. Oh, was that where I, I caught that a That was where you were. Now, I, I, I told you to, I think I said try and go to a certain place, but you wouldn't get there. You couldn't get there. Up at Marika. Oh, okay. Now, Marika Lodge there was where the king, the, 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 he was eventually the king of England, but he was, he was just the duke then. And there was a fish in the hut there, which he caught, uh, a, a wood carving. It's only about seven or eight pounds in weight. But it's still there in, in there today. Oh, in that's the so interesting. Yeah. Well, Even I'm, the chair where he sat in and wrote his diary is, is still there. I'm going to have to get this stuff because the, the book that I just finished reading, it's a, it's a book that was written by, that is, has been written by a historian. And it explains 1870 is kind of where it begins with people starting to come over from the UK. Yep, that's about that ties Canada. in with that, ties in with the time when Hardy started in 18. 91, I think it was, uh, 1891. And the Perfect was invented in 1896. They weren't fishing for salmon in the 1700s? Mm, that possibly could have been, but no, I don't know about it. I, I, I would think probably 
the majority of it was 1800. Sounds right. 1815. And uh, as I say, the early reels were, were all brass reels, very, very heavy, and all the rods were green art and also very, heavy. Uh, very heavy. <laughs> yeah. And the lines were uh, made of horsehair. Oh, really? Not yeah. even silk yet? No, 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 no. They were all horse, horse, uh, plaited horsehair. Jeez. And it was all made in tapers, you know, so, and the, uh, the, the, the tying the flies on, they used gut, of course. They discovered the silkworm gut and that had to be soaked before they could use it and tie it. And so it was quite a, it was quite a big thing to go for a day's fishing when, uh, you know, in those, and in those days on the beach in Scotland, they had, they had rod boxes, the length, the length of those, uh, where those planks are. They're still there. Andy will probably show you some if you ask him when you're up there. Ooh. And they had locks on and uh, all the rods were put in there from one season to the next. The clients' rods. And the gillies looked after them and took them out and cleaned them, oiled them, and ready for the, for the clients coming. Uh, the gillies and the sports, huh? Yeah. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much, Chris. I'm just trying to think. Um, questions? Yeah, I want to see the reel. Do you mind? I got a shot of the inside of that room. No, no, no. Is there anything that you want to say before we let you go to no, dinner? No, 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 I'm all right, April. I am. You are great at interviews. I mean, Why you are you nervous? And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening.